Hello, and welcome to the Spirit, Power, and Grace podcast, a podcast where we explore where the Holy Spirit is at work in the world today and why that matters in your life. My name is Andrew Thompson, and it's great to have you along. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about the issue of identity, and specifically spiritual identity. I want to get into that by sharing a little story. In the year 1742, John Wesley, the great evangelist and leader of the Methodist movement, wrote an essay that was intended to explain who the Methodist people were and what exactly it was that they were up to. Methodists were suspect in those early days of the revival. It was feared by many that they could be politically dangerous or perhaps even religiously revolutionary. So John Wesley wrote an essay with a simple and innocuous title. It was called The Character of a Methodist. In an orderly and recognizably Wesleyan style, John laid out several things that he said did not mark the character of a Methodist that he explained in this way. He said first that a Methodist was not distinguished by opinions on matters that do not strike at the heart of the Christian faith. In other words, Methodists were not people who were into doctrinal experimentation. They weren't interested in speculation. Things that didn't strike at the heart of the Christian faith were not things that they were going to be about. The second thing that he said that Methodists were not distinguished by were what he called words or phrases of any sort, any peculiar mode of speaking. In other words, no secret passwords here. There were no abracadabras. There was no jargon that Methodists adopted as some type of insider language that other people were not privy to or that would set them apart or mark them out as a a special society of people. The third thing that he said Methodists were not distinguished by were what he called actions, customs, or usages of an indifferent nature. Or in other words, that Methodists did not engage in practices or habits that were intended specifically to mark them out if they didn't have to do with the core practice of what it meant to live as a disciple of Jesus. And then fourthly, the last thing that he said did not distinguish Methodists was a stress on any single part of religion to the neglect of the whole. Or in other words, Methodists didn't pull out their Bibles, single out a few proof texts and say, aha, this is what Christians need to be about, as opposed to taking into account what Wesley would elsewhere called the whole scope and tenor of Scripture. So in other words, what does all this say? Well, it says that Methodists are not weirdos. The Methodists are not meant to be sectarians or, or eccentric. They don't obsess over one particular part of the Christian revelation while ignoring the whole of that revelation. And they certainly don't lift up some non-biblical habit or affectation as a way of setting themselves apart. Okay, well, that's fair enough. So what then is a Methodist, according to Wesley? Before we get into that, let me just pause and say a word about identity and where we are in our culture right now. And when I say that, I'm speaking, of course, as as an American, a Protestant or an evangelical Christian who is speaking to you in late in the year 2023. I believe that we are in the midst of one of the greatest upheavals and shifts in religious or spiritual identity that has occurred in, well, hundreds of years. 
I think this probably began in Europe around the time of the Second World War. And I think that what we've seen in Western Europe as the significance of the church, the Christian church and of the religious practices or the spiritual uh, allegiances of of uh, Europeans has been on the wane for decades. I think that that was a precursor of what we're seeing happen in the United States of America right now. Uh, and I think that probably uh, absent something that would be hard to predict and certainly impossible to bring about by human effort, I think that um, that waning of Christian identity uh, amongst the population as a whole is likely to continue. At the same time, it's interesting that when we look in many parts of the developing world, particularly in what is often called the global south, sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, South Asia, uh, what we see elsewhere is a great explosion of evangelism, of church planting, of baptisms, and of professions of faith. What this means in terms of the health of the Christian church is hard to suss out on its face. But clearly, we're in the midst of great changes. In the case of Western culture, and in the case of American culture in particular, what I think this means is that for Christians who are committed to their faith, for believers who place their discipleship to Jesus Christ at the very center of their lives, it means that the years ahead are going to be times of testing and of trial. There are also going to be times when Christians are divided from Christians, as we're going to see some wings of the church that are going to be more beholden to culture than they are to the scriptures. Indeed, I think that we're already seeing that. It means that we're going to be living in a time when Christians who want to advance this cause of the kingdom who want to shine a light for Jesus Christ, to be the light of the world, as he says, to be the city set upon a hill, to be like a lamp set upon a stand shining in the darkness, all images that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. It means that Christians who are determined to live that kind of life are going to have to be committed in a special way. It means that they might have to endure Rejection on the part of their families, on their friends, uh, their co-workers, their colleagues, their neighbors. It means that they're going to have to be willing to make themselves strange in the world as the values of the secular society increasingly grow and evolve into something that doesn't resemble the Christian faith at all. All of that means that the issues of labels of identities are going to become more and more important. No longer are Christians going to be able to count on their Christian identity as something that helps them to quote unquote, get ahead in the world. Indeed, a good friend and a prescient observer of contemporary culture of my own has made the case that Christianity is no longer a positive in American culture. It's not even a net neutral, but instead Christianity, particularly those who are willing to wear their Christian identity as a part of their day-to-day lives in a, in a really visible and noticeable way, that that has become actually a net negative in our culture. If that's the case, then that means that Christians are going to be in for a period of adjustment. It means we're going to have to get used to the new status quo. And if we want to not constantly be in retreat, but actually be on offense in terms of 
spreading the message of Jesus Christ, introducing non-believers to Jesus, helping people to come to know what it means to confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, and helping people also to be open to the power of the Holy Spirit that they might receive new birth in their own lives, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to walk the path of sanctification. It means that we are going to have to join together and to do everything we can to stand firm and to continue to practice our faith, regardless of what that might mean for us. Okay, so back to the issue of Methodist identity. The reason why I think that what was going on in England in the 1740s under the leadership of John Wesley and the early Methodist revival, the reason why I think all of those things are significant is because the identity that Wesley and the Methodists carried was seen as an object of controversy, sometimes of persecution in the society in which they lived. And that society was at least nominally Christian. But the Methodists were seen as being Christians of a particular sort, serious Christians, even strict Christians, Christians who believed that the faith in Jesus Christ that had been given to them was something that was meant to define every thought, word, and action of their lives. And so Wesley put pen to paper, writing essays throughout the 1740s and beyond that were intended to help Methodists understand who they were, and also the broader world to understand who they were. And that is exactly why in that 1742 essay, The Character of a Methodist, Wesley begins by pointing out what Methodists are not. Those four points that I opened up the episode with today. After he finishes delineating those four points, he goes on to offer a positive definition of what a Methodist is. And I'm going to read that for you now. He says this, What then is the mark? Who is a Methodist? According to your own account, I answer, A Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost given unto him. One who loves the Lord his God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind and with all his strength. God is the joy of his heart and the desire of his soul, which is constantly crying out, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire but thee. My God and my all, thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, that's inspiring language, but at the core of it is a simple definition. And the definition essentially says that a Methodist is one who loves the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, and who loves his neighbor as himself. In other words, what John Wesley is saying here is a Methodist is nothing more than a Christian, because a Christian is one who has heard and received and who practices the two great commandments that Jesus gives us, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor. What Wesley is implying here, though, is that a Methodist is one who not only understands those things, but actually embraces them and practices them with his life. If you turn a few years after the year that the character of a Methodist was written to the year 1745, Wesley penned another essay, this one called Advice to the People Called Methodists. And at the very opening of this essay, he offers another definition of what a Methodist Christian is. And this is the way that he describes it. It's a little bit different than the definition that he had given previously. 
He says, by Methodists, I mean a people who profess to pursue in whatsoever measure they've attained holiness of heart and life, inward and outward conformity in all things to the revealed will of God, who place religion in a uniform resemblance of the great object of it in a steady imitation of him they worship in all his imitable perfections, more particularly in justice, mercy, and truth, or universal love, filling the heart and governing the life. Now, I absolutely love this passage, and I love it because so much of the heart of Wesley's theology of Christian identity is wrapped up in what it is that he says here. I want you to think about some of the pairs of items that he's mentioning here. For example, he says, holiness of heart and life. There's one pair. Right after that, he says, inward and outward conformity in all things to the revealed will of God. And then finally, one more pair at the very end of the quote where he says, universal love, filling the heart and governing the life. So think about those pairs. The first pair, holiness of heart and life. There's one, heart and life. The second one, inward and outward conformity in all things to the revealed will of God. It's inward and outward. And then the last one is the universal love filling the heart and governing the life. So on the first and third of those, we have a pair of heart and life. And in the second of the three, we have inward and outward. What is, in fact, the case is that the inward and the outward actually matches up exactly to what Wesley means by heart and life. Because whenever he uses the phrase heart and life, as he does over and over and over again, he's talking about a particular quality of the Christian life that has to do with how one is transformed and changed inwardly that leads inevitably to a changed and transformed outward existence as well. I used to study up on this stuff more than I do now. And back when I did that, I researched the phrase heart and life in Wesley's writing. I wanted to know if he ever used the phrase in reverse. If he ever talked about life and heart, specifically with that phrase, holiness of heart and life, which is an important and a key theological term for Wesley. I searched again and again and again to see if I could ever find a place where Wesley used the phrase holiness of life and heart. And I never did find it. The reason why I think you won't find that phrase in Wesley and the reason why when he talks about holiness, he always talks about holiness of heart and then life is because in Wesley's view, there's a very simple conviction and it's at the heart of how he believes salvation can happen in our lives. That is that being comes before doing. In other words, we can't live as children of God. We can't do for God until we are children of God, until we have been made children of God by the power of the witness of the Holy Spirit. You see, Wesley believed that in order for us to really experience salvation, we had to be born again. He would point us to the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus by the dark of night and is confused. He's heard all of these things about Jesus and Jesus sits him down and engages in a conversation with him. I'm going to read a little bit of that from John chapter three right now. What Nicodemus says to Jesus to open up the conversation is this. He says, Rabbi, 
We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's at that point, of course, that Nicodemus gets very confused, and he says to Jesus, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then Jesus answers him, and this passage is so key. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it goes or where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus himself locates citizenship in the kingdom with the idea of being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, receiving the new birth, being born again. Wesley reads that, and he comes to believe in the late 1730s that if someone does not have that experience of new birth, they can't really be a Christian, can't live as a Christian. He can't act as a Christian. He can't do as a Christian. And the reason why he can't live and act and do as a Christian is because he has not come to know himself as a Christian, to know himself, as it says in Romans chapter eight, as having received the spirit of adoption by which we can know that we are children of God. It is, after all, the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. And in order for us to experience that holiness, we have to have the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is something Wesley would say that will make our hearts holy. And when he says make our hearts holy, he doesn't just mean the organ that's in my chest right now that's beating every second and pumping blood throughout my body. By the heart, he means the will. He means the inner man or the inner woman. He means that which makes us who we are. He's talking about our affections. They have to be made holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when our heart is made holy, because our will drives everything else that we think, say, and do, then our life will become holy as a consequence. And that, that is why he always talks about holiness of heart and life as opposed to holiness of life and heart. We have to be before we can do. We have to know ourselves as Christians before we can act and live and witness as Christians in the world. And so if you want to know why he gives this second definition of what a Methodist is in terms of pairs, the pairing of heart and life, the pairing of inward and outward conformity to the revealed will of God, it's because he believes that that is what salvation is. And all a Methodist is, is a serious Christian who has received salvation in Jesus Christ, who has committed to follow him in his own life or in her own life and is committed to helping others to do the same. It's worth us thinking about what we think about Methodist identity in this day and age for those of us who consider ourselves Methodist. It's probably true that older denominational or traditional labels attached to churches are not helpful to those churches in the way that they used to be. And that's the case whether you're talking about Baptists or Lutherans or Episcopalians or Presbyterians or, yes, even Methodists. 
But I think that when it comes to that kind of a traditioned label or name or identity, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want to just reject it? Do we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Do we want to allow the kind of um, flavor du jour of Christian spirituality in our culture to kind of rule the roost? Or do we want to reach back and do we want to reclaim an identity and say, no, there's something vital about this. And if it is out of vogue, or if it's even been abused in some quarters, it doesn't mean that we want to let go of it. Indeed, we want to do the very opposite of that. We want to reclaim it. We want to redeem it and repurpose it for uh, use in the present. I would suggest that if we want to do that with the name Methodist, that we would go back to the original meaning of the term And I'd suggest that when we do that, when we read these definitions from a figure like John Wesley, like I've done today, that we would recognize what it's suggesting. It's suggesting first that Methodist identity is a biblical identity. It's an identity that embraces the whole of Scripture and most especially the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that takes the word seriously and lives according to it. Secondly, after biblical, I would suggest that what a Methodist is, is someone who is deeply evangelical as well. And when I say evangelical, I mean simply someone who has received the good news of Jesus Christ and has become convinced that that good news is the most important news that there is and is determined to share it with other people. You can think about the story in the first chapter of the Gospel of John when Jesus has been baptized. He's beginning to call his first disciples, and he calls Philip as one of those disciples. And Philip is so caught up with having met the Messiah that he goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says, you have to come meet this man, Jesus. You have to come. You have to come and see him. You have to you have to come and hear him. And Nathaniel says to in response to Philip's invitation, Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip, who is who is who refuses to take no for an answer, says to his friend Nathaniel, just come and see, just come and see. That's the heart of an evangelical. The heart of an evangelical is someone whose life has been so transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ that he is determined to go to all that he can and say, just come and see. You have to understand I've heard the best news that there is. And the third thing that I think should mark Methodist identity is that Methodists are a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Wesley actually suggests this in that very first definition that I read for you from the character of a Methodist in 1742. In that, he says that a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost given unto him. That is, of course, a reference to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. The love of God is something that comes to us by the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to us when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the pattern that we see in the Acts of the Apostles again and again and again. The Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and fills those who are there. The disciples, they speak in tongues as the Lord gave them utterance. Those who are attracted to the commotion that's going on can hear the gospel all spoken in their own language. Peter stands up. He gives a powerful sermon. The people are cut to the heart. They say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will, this is a key phrase, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, that's what happens. And what we see in the Acts of the Apostles again and again and again is that people are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has gone to the home of Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier, and he's there with many Gentiles. He opens up his mouth and he begins to, to preach the gospel to those who are, who are gathered there. And it says, this is starting in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that would be the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, Christian people are people who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, who know what it means to have the love of God shed abroad in their hearts. And that should absolutely be at the core of what it means to be a Methodist. So what are Methodists? They're people who are biblical, who are evangelical, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Finally, I would suggest that Methodists ought to be marked apart as people who are committed. People who are committed to the Lord Jesus, who tells them to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him. People who are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission where Jesus says to go into all of the world and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. People who are committed when they receive the power of the Holy Spirit that gives them the ability to know Jesus by being born again, to be sanctified fully and entirely in heart and life, to be filled with the fruits of the Spirit that mark them apart as having the character of Christ and who are filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit that they might encourage and build up the church and also go out and make the kingdom of God visible in Jesus' name to non-believers. People who are committed, in other words, to living out their faith in every single aspect of their lives. If Methodist people come to be known by that, then the name Methodist won't be something that Methodist people have to hide from their church signs, but rather something that they want, would want to proclaim as powerfully and as visibly as possible. Because by proclaiming that name and by holding to that identity, they will be offering the very gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Later on in that same essay from 1745, Advice to the People Called Methodists, Wesley says this. He says, look, if you walk by this rule, continually endeavoring to know and love and resemble and obey the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the God of love, of pardoning mercy, if from this principle of loving, obedient faith, you carefully abstain from all evil and labor as you have opportunity to do good to all men, friends and enemies. If lastly, you unite together to encourage and help each other in thus working out your salvation. And for that end, watch over one another in love. You are they whom I mean by Methodists. It's just another way of offering that same definition. That a Methodist is one who loves the Lord his God, who loves his neighbor as himself. That a Methodist is one 
who has received holiness of heart and life because he has come to believe in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that has witnessed with his own spirit that he is a child of God. That a Methodist is someone who holds fast to these biblical teachings, who follows Jesus as a disciple, who loves the Lord his God, who loves his neighbor as himself, and who is committed to sharing that love with other people. My whole life, all I have wanted was to be able to embrace a Christian identity that I felt like I could give my everything to, that I felt like that I could preach about, that I could share with other people, that I felt like would give my life meaning and significance. I believe the time is coming when Methodist Christians who are committed to the scriptures, to the power of the Holy Spirit, and to the work of renewal and revival in the world are going to receive something that they haven't received in a very long time. I don't know that the road ahead of us is going to be entirely easy all the time, but it is going to be a road worth traveling. And I believe that there are going to be a great many of us who want to travel it together. I don't know about you, but that makes me excited indeed. And I hope you'll join me. Well, that's about all the time that we have today on Spirit, Power, and Grace. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or your podcast provider of choice. Our audio engineer is Miguel Figueredo. The podcast is edited by Kyle Westfall. We'd love for you to help us spread the word and continue to grow our listener base. So please like, share, and subscribe. Thanks for joining me today. Until next time, this is Andrew Thompson for Spirit, Power, and Grace.